As Jem said, we are very much in the build-up to Christmas. And on that note, I want to start this morning with a little bit of a confession that I'm hoping some of you can join me in. Who else has not quite finished their Christmas shopping? Thank you. This, this helps me very much. Um, I've done most of my Christmas shopping, um, but one of the presents I still have to buy is my present for my mum. And my mum is always really difficult to buy for and really annoying because whenever I ask her, Mum, Christmas is coming up, or your birthday is coming up. What can I get you? And my mum always says, oh, I don't need anything. And that's the least helpful thing, because we know I can't get her nothing. I considered it. I decided that was a trap. <laughs> but it was always really confusing for me growing up, the idea that she couldn't think of one thing that she needed. Because as a child, I had so many things I needed for Christmas that I, I couldn't choose between them. When we had the, from September onwards, my birthday was in August, and after that it was all thinking ahead towards Christmas presents. And we would have the Argos catalogue in, in the house. And I would go through it from September, and I would be circling everything I needed. Pretty much every page of the toy section was circled. And I always got confused that the toy section was, was at the back, because that was the most important one. I was like, why do people need all of this? Why do people need kettles and toasters and curtains? The, 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 the toys are what we need. But there was one year, I think it was 1998. I was seven years old, and I had one very clear idea of what I needed. This was the year that I was old enough to be allowed a Game Boy. And I was desperate for it. I was waiting for it. It was also the year the first Pokemon game was coming out. And I knew this was the one thing that I needed. And lo and behold, on Christmas Day, I open it up and I get, I get my Game Boy Pocket. Uh, came with the little, the little camera. I don't know if people are, how many people are old enough to remember the Game Boy camera. It was a terrible camera. It, people kind of looked slightly humanoid, but still kind of like chip monkey. Um, and it didn't go well. Um, and I got my Pokemon game. And so precious was this Game Boy to me that two days later, December the 27th, I accidentally dropped it down the toilet. <laughs> I was devastated. Now, and, and clearly, it wasn't as precious and it wasn't going to meet all of my needs in the way that eight-year-old, seven-year-old Matt thought it was going to. Now, we, we were able to replace it. This was before there were complicated returning policies. They didn't have a water damage clause at Argos. So we got it replaced, and it brought me a lot of happiness over the coming year. I, I took loads of pictures that didn't look like anything. I caught all 151 Pokemon, um, because that's how many there were in those days. Um, but soon enough, the next game console came along, and my Game Boy became worthless. Didn't, didn't fulfill it in the way that I had expected it to. And that, I think, really talks of the things of this world and how this is a time of year where the lines between want and need get really, really blurry. The, whether it's adverts or whether it's social media, we are told that this is the time of year where we can indulge, where we can have excess, where, the, where if there is something we want, we should get it. And we can even feel guilty for not indulging in excess. And if, if we can't get the things that, that we want or that the, the world and society say we need, the world says, oh, I'll provide for this. Here's a credit card. Here's a loan. And more and more people are getting themselves into debt over Christmas. 
There was a study by the Bank of England a couple of years ago that said, on average, it takes three months for a family to return financially to where they were from before Christmas. That's a quarter of the year. A quarter of the average person's life is spent recovering financially from Christmas, from buying the things that the world tells us that we need. And that makes me think back to what do we really need? And I want to ask you this morning, have a think. What is it that you feel you need this Christmas? What's going to meet your needs? And given the story I've just shared, you're, you're probably, your brain is probably shying away from the technology and from the stuff, but it might still be resting on, on things of this world. Maybe you're thinking of recognition at work or a new promotion. And these are, these are noble things. There's nothing inherently wrong with them. But when we look at the life of Jesus, so often what we feel we need and what the world tells us we need and what God and Jesus provide and what they say we need, they are, they are so often, sometimes just slightly subtly, but often completely different. And this is true in the life of Jesus, but it's also clear throughout the Old Testament that God has a very clear picture of what we need. And throughout the Old Testament, it is scattered with promises. Promises of Jesus to come. Because the Old Testament highlights our need as humanity for Jesus so strongly. The Old Testament is full of God's people getting things wrong, going the wrong way, listening to the things of this world, setting their sights on, on anything but God. And so God constantly said to them, that's not what you need. What you need is me. And I will provide it. So this morning we're going to look at a passage that you've probably heard quite often at Carol's concerts and looked and thought, oh, I guess that does kind of sound like Jesus. Uh, but I want to really dig into it this morning. Um, so we're looking at the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. Um, and for a little bit of context... The, the book of Isaiah is, walks a, a line between seemingly condemnation and redemption. It highlights the need of the people of Israel to, to follow God and their inability to do so by their own strength. But then it is also peppered throughout with promises of how God is going to resolve this. So we're going to start from uh, chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in the darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. We're going to pause there. We're going to pick that up a little bit later. But I want to really look at this because it, it starts with a really clear indication of the state of Israel and what I think is often going on in our hearts a lot of the time. The people who have walked in the darkness, have seen a great light. 
I don't know how often you try to walk in the darkness. In modern times, we have, in a big city like Manchester, we have lights everywhere. It's very rare that we are in total darkness. But earlier this year, I was in Egypt, um, and I was in the Sinai Peninsula, um, and I, I did a hike up Mount Sinai. I didn't quite make it to the top, but at the base of Mount Sinai, there is a monastery that has been there for over 1,500 years. And it has, throughout history, been a pilgrimage place where people would go to, to praise Jesus, to remember what God did for his people in the Sinai, uh, in the Sinai Desert. And the Sinai Desert is pretty hard to navigate, even, even in the light. It, it all looks the same. There's rocks and there's sand everywhere. At night, so much harder. But what they have at St. Catherine's Monastery is not at the very top of the mountain, but at the highest peak that overlooks the monastery itself, someone climbed up and they set a light on top of it so that people looking for this monastery to come and to praise God at it would be able to see this light from hundreds of miles away and they would know that they have a destination to go towards. Similarly, when God's people were in the Sinai Desert, uh, God often guided them with a pillar of fire by night, something that was so clear in the darkness that they couldn't help but make it their destination, their, their guide, so they knew where they were going. And that's what God is saying Jesus is doing here. And for the people of Israel at this time, the darkness was fear of their enemy, the darkness was wanting to be a powerful nation by their own strength. For us, it looks a little bit different, but it's still there. We, when we are not looking at God, our lives fall into darkness because we don't have a destination, because we are looking at the things of this world, which all look the same because they're all in the darkness. But when we see the light of Jesus and we make that our destination, we have somewhere to go and we have a direction, and we have a destination. And it goes one step further. It says, those who dwelt in the land of deep, deep darkness, on them has light shone. This light that Jesus is, it's not just our destination, but it's shining on us. It's there to impact us. The glory of Jesus is cast over us, so that to everyone else living in the darkness, not looking at the light, they may not see the light of Jesus, but they can see Jesus' light reflected on us and shone out through us and the way we live. And it then goes on to say how this light, that his Jesus, is going to help the nation. We see that they're going to be increased in joy, that they're going to be rejoicing, they're going to be in a place of abundance. And that the yoke of their burden the staff for their shoulder, the rod of their oppressor. This is, in this context, this is the power of the people who would overtake Israel. This is the power of people who would enslave and capture Israel and make them work for the other kingdom's glory, for the other kingdom's wealth and the other kingdom's riches. It says these things are going to be broken. These things are going to be cast into the fire. And for us, that is all of the things we serve, all of the things we serve that aren't God, all of the things that this world tells us we need to be working towards are going to be broken as on the day of Midian. 
Now, the day of Midian refers to a really cool story from a few hundred years before, where this guy called Gideon, because rhyming is, is good in the Bible. Um, uh, so Gideon was leading a fairly big army of God's people into this camp, which was um, held by the Midianites. And this camp had over 100,000 people, we, we, we learn later. And instead of bringing all the forces to, to take this camp, God says, no, we're going we're gonna to cut, cut your forces back. And eventually, bit by bit, they're cut back to 300 men against an encampment with over 100,000. And I imagine they were pretty scared. And God specifically said he was doing this so that they would have to rely on God, so that they could not claim this victory for themselves, but they had to declare that this is God who has won. So we've got 300 men looking to march against an encampment of 100,000. And you think, okay, well, we better get some, some pretty good weapon. We better get, be tooled up for this. Flamethrowers, rocket launchers. God said, no, no, you're going to be armed with torches and clay pots and trumpets. <laughs> and so God led 300 men devoted to him and um, against this, this encampment of over 100,000. And as soon as they lit their torches and blew their trumpets, the people fled. And this story tells us that this, this battle is a point in Israel's history where they can declare this is a battle that God has won. As came out in contributions in the worship time, we cannot declare our achievements for ourselves. We cannot do things for ourselves. We cannot work towards our own salvation. It is utterly and completely in the hands of God to provide it. And this is a promise 700 years before Jesus came, that Jesus is coming to fulfill that need, to give us what we need that we cannot get for ourselves through our own work. And then it sort of goes on to say how this is going to be. I'm going to jump back to verse 2 so that we can see it all the way through. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And this next bit will probably seem a little bit familiar if you were paying attention in worship. Um, I should point out we didn't plan this. The worship team didn't, team didn't know what I was uh, speaking on, and I didn't know what songs they were planning. Um, but it goes on to say how God is going to do this. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it 
and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So we have this promise of great redemption, of abundance of joy, of salvation from oppressors. And then we move on to how this is going to be provided. And it's going to be provided through a child. Now, there's a couple of times in our history where a child has become king. And usually this is filled with a anxiety because I don't know how many children you know, but I can't think of a child who I'd want to run the country. I mean, compared to what we've got at the moment, I don't know. But in general, children as governors, as kings, as, as leaders, not necessarily the way to go. They're still, they're still working stuff out. So we think, okay, probably, okay, if it's going to be a child, they're probably going to be a very special child. There's probably going to be a big, a big entrance, and there's going to be something spectacular about them. They're going to be a particularly wise child. But when we look at the story of how Jesus came into this world, so much of it is about as unkingly as you can imagine. We've got a, a carpenter's wife who, who falls pregnant immaculately. They've got to travel across the desert on a donkey. They've got to have the baby in a stable because there's nowhere else for them. This lack of preparation makes me feel a little bit better about the fact that I've not yet done my Christmas shopping. But it tells us that this son is given to us to fulfill this promise, to give us what we need. And there's a few names or qualifications that we're told he's going to have that we can look at and see in the life of Jesus. The first one is wonderful counselor. And there's a couple of aspects I want to pick out of this. One is that he is his own wonderful counsellor. Usually when people are, are making decisions from positions of authority, they require help and they require advice. I'm a social worker, and sometimes when a big decision needs to be made in the life of a child I'm working with, we may have to go to court, and there'll be a judge who ultimately makes that decision based on the evidence and the information and the advice that we give. And at the end, when he's making his, his judgment, he will thank us for our counsel. We are there to advise him who has the authority to make the decision. Jesus doesn't need that. Jesus doesn't need our advice or us coming in saying, have you thought of this way of doing things? Because he is himself wise enough to know how to run his nation, his kingdom. The other side of that is that because he is wise... He becomes our counsellor. He becomes the one to advise us and to guide us. And we know that we can trust him in that because he understands us. Again, as came out in worship this, this morning, he came into this world and he lived a human life. He, came, he, he was born as a baby. He grew up as a child. Now, sometimes we can look at childhood and think, oh, that's an easy time of life. That's, that's where we're carefree and we can do what we want. 
I'm going to disagree with that. I think childhood is really difficult. You're going through new things every day that you haven't experienced before. Yes, we might look back at them and say, oh, well, that's easy. We can, we can do that. We can learn the alphabet. No problem. But these kids have never done it before. They, they are going through the process of learning to walk, learning to speak, learning to read and write. And Jesus went through all of that. Jesus went through the pains of childhood and puberty. Jesus probably had acne. Jesus probably there, popping his zits. And he did that. And then he didn't just stop there. He lived a life. And when we look at Jesus' ministry, we can see that he was met with challenge and difficulty. He was rejected. He was chased out of towns. He wept when his friends died. And then he took on the death that we deserved ourselves. He took on our sin, our shame, everything we've done wrong and couldn't make up for ourselves. He underwent and he died on a cross as a criminal for us. So when we look at Jesus, we can see someone who has connected with us through his life, who understands us, who understands the human condition, who, goes, who, who knows what to do, and we can trust him. We then learn that he is going to be mighty God. Colossians 2.9 tells us, for in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head and rule of authority. Jesus doesn't just understand our difficulties and our problems. He has authority over them. We look at the people ruling and we think, oh, they've, they've got to come up with some clever plan. They've got to come up with some policy or some financial plan to bring us out of difficulty Jesus doesn't need some clever plan or law or policy. Jesus has authority over the problems. He doesn't need a plan to fix injustice. He declares injustice gone, and it is gone. So we don't need to work our way out of these difficulties. Jesus has authority. He tells them to go, and they go. Jesus is eternal father. Jesus is not bound by earthly timescales. As we see in the Gospels, yes, he lived a finite life as a person and he died death like a person. But then three days later, he rose again. And then around 40 days after that, he ascended into heaven to his heavenly throne where he still sits and will sit forevermore. He is not a king or a ruler bound by an election cycle. He is not one who is putting in policies that we can trust for a few years to come. He is bringing a kingdom that we can declare ourselves part of now for the rest of our lives and into eternity. We can stake our lives in Jesus because we know it will never change. He will be there. He will be reigning eternally. Jesus is Prince of Peace. This name speaks to his intent. And the peace here speaks of peace, not just on earth, but peace between us and God. As we heard in worship, there is something wrong by our nature 
that inhibits our relationship with God. We cannot connect to him fully because of our sin. And that is what Jesus wants to bring peace in, into. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is the kingdom that God has promised throughout history, throughout his people's history. Promise that was always going to be fulfilled in the birth and life and resurrection and reign of Jesus. That is a, a, a kingdom that we are declared part of when we give ourselves to Jesus. Because we know that we cannot do it ourselves. The things of this world cannot bring us salvation, cannot bring us into this eternal, perfect kingdom. The only thing that can, the thing that we need, the thing that God promised, the thing that God provided is Jesus, his reign, his authority that bring us into the kingdom Jesus established when he came to this world. The kingdom that we live in in part now that we can see unfolding before us. But the kingdom that we will be part of forevermore. The kingdom that Jesus brings to the end of the band can, can come up. This is what we need. We don't need clever plans. We don't need the material things that this world can offer, the temporary, transient things. We need and we have Jesus, our Savior, our Head, our King. Let's praise him.